up in John chapter 10 tonight. Uh, it's a kind of a cold night, and I probably kept you a little longer than you were expecting this morning, so maybe we'll be more brief tonight. Uh, the more I read through this passage, uh, the more I become convinced that what's being illuminated here is the very thing that Jesus had said earlier uh, in chapter 9. Uh, verse 39, when Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may, be, may see and that those who see may become blind. Uh, you almost see those two, those two uh, results of Christ's coming demonstrated in the blind man who, if you think about it, who believes to such a degree that having his eyes anointed with clay, uh, he simply obeys the Lord. He's, he doesn't have his... Uh, vision restored at that moment. Uh, there's, it's not like Jesus anoints his eyes and his vision returns and then he tells him to go wash and he obeys having his sight. He obeys while he's still blind. In fact, as I was sharing in that message, he was almost doubly blind. Not only could he not see from birth, but now he had clay covering his blind eyes. So he's almost double blind. But at the command of Jesus, he believes and he goes and he washes and sure enough, he receives his sight. On the other, contrast to that are these religious leaders whom Jesus is speaking to very plainly, and yet the more he speaks, the more hardened they get time and again. Uh, it says they took up stones, uh, wanting to stone him. So the clearer he was, the more blinded it seems they were, or the more it illuminated their blindness. Their very rejection of Christ demonstrated that they were more blind than the man born blind. Uh, at least he recognized his blindness and in his obedience and his simple faith in Christ uh, received his sight. However, they, claiming to see, were as blind as he was and became more blind along the way. And, and it just there seemed to, be to, me, to me to be a principle involved here that the, that the, more, immediate, uh, the more immediate the revelation we have, uh, the more potentially blinded to it we come, the more hardened we come to that truth. And, if, and I thought about that in context of this nation, particularly our nation. I mean, we've been blessed in many ways to have platforms here from which the gospel has been proclaimed. And, and we've certainly seen the hand of God. And it, yet in that, in that environment, under that testimony and that witness, uh, we've rejected him. And as a result, we're becoming more and more blind. And so we're, in a very real sense, becoming doubly blind. So, so I think you see that unfolding uh, even here when Jesus is describing himself as the good shepherd and the door and so forth, and they just become hardened to that. So we're picking up in verse 22, and we'll read through to the end of that chapter. So after what we shared this morning, after that took place, it speaks in verse 19 of a division that occurred there, uh, some saying he's insane, he has a demon, don't listen to him, the others uh, pointing out that nobody demon-possessed could be doing these things and speaking this way. And so we leave off there in verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. And it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? That's a really, very pivotal question there. Uh, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And to me, Jesus' response is extraordinary, but Jesus answers and says to them, I told you, I told you, and you do not believe. 
So let me just insert here before we read on. I think notice here the idea of believing here. Uh, in other words, I've told you, you just don't believe. Then he goes and says, the works that I do in my father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe. So the issue is you don't believe. Because, he says, you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Of course, there 31, you can see the response. They understood this. Because the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them and said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them and said, Has it not been written in your law, I said you were God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the spirit cannot be broke, the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came in to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And then verse 42 concludes with many believed in him there. So I just want to look at this passage tonight and just kind of explore uh, to me where my heart was led was the idea of believing and explaining in regards to their unbelief. Obviously, the, the festival of dedication was here. You may know that as Hanukkah. Uh, some of you will know the history of that, uh, the Maccabean revolts, and there was a restoration of the temple there, and the, uh, the, the lighting of the menorah was involved there, and they believed there was just enough oil for, uh, for one night, but then for eight nights, the oil kept miraculously replenishing. That was the tradition anyway. So that was the feast there, which I think was interesting uh, because Jesus is walking around in the temple during the festival of lights, and he's already said, I am the light of the world. And so there he is in the temple, they're having the festival of lights, remembering a miraculous provision of light in the temple, and to have one of the most miraculous displays of light to ever inhabit the earth in that Jesus Christ is in their midst. So he's there in that context walking around in the temple. And it says in verse 23 uh, in the temple in the portico of Solomon, while he was there, then verse 24, the climax here, the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us. So verse 19 to 21, we already know uh, that there was a division that happened because of the words of Christ in terms of him being the good shepherd, the door, uh, probably even related to the healing of the blind man and all the discourse that happened there. So we already know there's a division. And so apparently the Jewish leaders get together and they, they want to come to some resolution. They want to come to some settling of this uh, contention or this division that's happened among themselves. So they come and they confront Jesus in that place and they say something I think is remarkable. How long will you keep us in suspense? We are suspended over here. 
Well, in some ways, the last thing they are was in suspension. Uh, it seems to me very clearly that they had already made some conclusions. They weren't suspending their belief at all. Uh, and then they say to him, as though he had somehow been ambiguous about things, tell us plainly. And I wrote in my notes when I was thinking through this, uh, in chapter 8, verse 57 and 58, Jesus had been about as plain as he could possibly be. In fact, so plain that they took up stones immediately when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, that's not ambiguous speech. And they understood immediately what he meant in that moment because immediately they took up stones to stone him. And he, his time had not yet come and he slipped away out of their, uh, out of their range apparently. So, so they were not at all in suspense. Jesus had been spoken plainly. He's spoken plainly. He says so later on. I told you. I told you. Uh, I wrote this, though, in John 8, uh, 30 and 32 as well. But unbelief, this is just a statement. You think about this. But unbelief will not relent. It will not relent even under the weight of truth. Uh, because there's something, there's something by, about the nature of unbelief itself that, is, that has a vested interest in not relenting. In fact, I think what he's going to get at here is that the unbelief originates or, or it uh, it has to do with me passing judgment upon the truth that I do see. And that's why I'm saying unbelief, because it rests in my judgment, will not relent even in the face of truth. They've demonstrated it. I mean, over and over he said this, before Abraham was, I am. What am I going to do? Relent? Relent? You've been, he's speaking truth. You're in the very presence of truth. Will you relent in your unbelief in the presence of truth? Obviously, no. In fact, the very opposite. They take up stones to stone him. And to me, there was just a, a real warning there and a real instructive thing in regards to the nature of unbelief. It, will, it is unrelenting even in the face or under the weight of truth. Uh, also, unbelief wants plain speech upon which to sit in judgment. It does not relinquish, relinquish its self-governance or its self-determination. We want, don't keep us in suspense anymore. We, we, we're blind to the truth that you've been saying to us and, and you got us in suspense, which is false. You had already made a judgment on what he had said before and you concluded that you didn't agree with it. You were unbelieving. And further, not only does unbelief not relent under the weight of truth, it also demands plain speech. It wants you to say it clearly, say it outright. But then... Once you say it, unbelief wants to sit in judgment in regards to the truth you've spoken. Say it plainly, Jesus, and we'll, in our authoritative position, evaluate what you say, and we will make our own conclusions in regards to our beliefs on, in, uh, in terms of what you've shared there. So unbelief, you see, is still on the throne. You are still on the throne. And to me, that's exactly what he's running up against with these religious leaders. They will not relinquish their own authority and their own fleshliness and their own pride and their own arrogance to hear the truth. They are, they are self-dependent, or as it were, or self-sufficient. And so even when he speaks truth and even when he speaks plainly, they reject that and then accuse him of not speaking plainly and not speaking uh, uh, not, and keeping them in suspense. So you see the real issue here is their unbelief. So he finally, they ask him, speak plainly, and then essentially we'll decide. Uh, that's a 
from, to me, that's a precarious place to put yourself in in regards to the Lord's speaking and to the Lord's truth. To sit in judgment, Lord, if you just show me clearly, then I'll believe. I used to think, I used to even say this to my mom. But I would say, listen, if God shows, appears to me like he did Moses, then I will believe. We're about to read a passage uh, regarding, or uh, there's a passage regarding the rich man and Lazarus. You remember in hell, a man raises his eyes and of course he wants to be relieved from Lazarus. And the Lord says, no, there's a big gulf there. And then he pleads, well, send somebody to speak to my children so that they won't come to this awful place. And he says, they have Moses and the prophet. If they won't hear them, neither will they believe if one rises from the dead. And it's the same principle involved here. It's a precarious thing to sit in judgment upon the truth of God and say, I will decide. Let me and my immense wisdom and my infinite knowledge evaluate the claims of an infinite God and I'll make the decision as to whether or not you are to be believed. That's essentially where these religious leaders were. And they shift the responsibility to that to Jesus. You're not speaking plainly. You're being ambiguous. You're being coy with your answers. Say it plainly. Are you the Christ? And Jesus answers very clearly. I told you. I haven't been ambiguous at all. I've been very clear. You're not, you're not hearing. You're not, you're not receiving. You're not believing. But the issue is not my lack of clarity. The issue is the root of your unbelief. And that's what you don't understand. That's what you don't understand. So in verse 25, you see through 29, really, Jesus answers here. Jesus answered them, I told you. So in other words, I've spoken clearly. I have not kept you in spence. I have spoken, but you do not believe. There's the issue. I've been clear. I've not been ambiguous. I've not kept you in suspense. I've not been intentionally discreet in my speaking. I have spoken very plainly. In fact, others heard and believed. This man born blind, whom you say has no religious education whatsoever, after I anointed his eyes, I commanded him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And as a blind man with mud on his eyes, he groped his way to the pool and obeyed what I said. He believed. He didn't think I spoke ambiguously at all. He believed the works. He believed I sent, and when he went, he, he received his sight. And then Jesus finds him later in the temple, and he says, Do you believe in the Son of the Man? Son of Man. And he says, Lord, who is he that I might believe? And he says, I that speak to you and him. And he believed, and the Bible says, and he worshiped. He didn't seem to be struggling with ambiguity whatsoever. He believed. And so the issue here is not the obscure speech of Jesus. The issue is the root of believing and unbelieving. What results, what produces belief and what produces unbelief. And that's what they needed to understand most. And I think that's what Jesus is communicating to them. And I think also what we need to understand most. Because I think there's a real temptation for us to sit in our intellect and our education and evaluate the claims of Jesus. Be careful. That's a precarious place to be because that leaves you on the throne and you in the authoritative seat. Uh, I was saying uh, recently, I was talking about, it was in the context of tongues, but it was also in, regard, in regards to the Catholic Church and the Pope and, and kind of the ecclesiology there. And I said, one of the, one of the things that concerns me most about the signs, uh, the signs and some of those things, we had some brief conversations about that, is that it, it says... It says to the people who observe it, listen to me, 
uh, this miraculous things happening to me so I can be trusted. And it's almost as if by the exercise of that, you're shifting the authority to yourself. In other words, you can rely on me because clearly I'm under the influence of the spirit here. And so you're essentially undoing what was happening in the life of the church, which was once the apostles and the affirmation of those signs confirmed their word. And as we move through church history, you see that begin to fade away because the authority is shifting not from the man, not not to the man, but upon the scriptures. And so now you're establishing the scriptures as authoritative. And then you see religions and practices that are moving us back towards that. And as they do that, they're moving us away from the authority of scripture. So that's why it's important to to listen to things that Jesus is saying here. Because Jesus is interested or getting to the root of the matter. And they are completely, apparently oblivious to it. Which again, reaffirms their blindness. Everything Jesus said about them. This is the judgment that I have come into the world. Why? So that the blind, those who are blind may be able to see and those who see may become blind. (laughs) His, His presence and his teaching and their lack of understanding of it demonstrates that they are indeed blind. And if they understood that they were blind, then they might truly be made to see in Christ. And that's where he's getting at. So Jesus answers them, I have told you, but you did not believe Now he moves to this in verse 25, the works that I do in my father's name, these testify of me. So, okay, I've said I am the Messiah. I have spoken very plainly. I've told you that I am indeed the Christ, but yet you do not believe. So having set that aside, look at the works. The works that I do in my Father's name evaluate the works. They testify of me. They testify of who I am. Who does these works but the one sent from God? So look at the works. But then verse 26, he goes back to the belief. Again, but you do not believe. The works that I do, they testify of me, but you see the works and you do not believe. In fact, whenever they had a testimony of the works, they were encouraging the blind man to deny uh, that Jesus did it and give glory to God. Just don't bring Jesus into this at all. They pressured his parents and the parents said, we know he was born blind. That's all we know. He's a grown man. I call him in here, ask him because we don't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. We don't want to be cut off from the people of Israel. So ask him. So <clears throat> they saw the works but they would not attribute them to God. In fact, they were saying, let's give glory to God, but don't attribute them to this Jesus. So Jesus says, you see the works, they testify of me, but again, you do not believe. I speak plainly and you do not believe. You see the works and you do not believe. So again, the problem is you don't believe. And then he tells us why they don't believe, because you are not of my sheep. Now, I want to pause here because the order for me was important. When you say because, you're, going to, you're talking causality now. You are not believing, and he gives the causality for you're not believing is you're not of my sheep. So if you look at the order, being of my sheep is prior and believing is consequential of being of my sheep. It's not the other way around. It isn't, I believe and become a part of your sheep. He's saying that the order here, the causality for your unbelieving my plain speech and the works that I do is because you are not of my sheep. So there's something about your identity or his relationship with you that is the absence of which is producing unbelief 
or the presence of which is producing belief. And that's critical. Uh, that's critical. I think it's critical to biblical Christian doctrine, but it's certainly critical to their situation here because the right answer would have been, well, well how am I to believe if I'm not of your sheep? In other words, if I'm not, how do I become one of your sheep so that I might believe? Well, then you're in the right, you're in the right mode because now you're asking the right questions. But until you get to that place, you are still in the authority seat. You are passing judgment upon the teachings and the proclamations of Jesus Christ. And in that mode, you will never be a believer because you are demonstrating that you are not of his sheep. And that's why I think this is such a critical discourse and why I think it ties into the larger pattern that it's demonstrating the blindness of those who say they can see. While the man who really couldn't see and understood it is walking around now, not only seeing with his physical eyes, but having seen with his spiritual eyes and having become a worshiper of Jesus. A very, very large contrast here. See, Jesus goes on. Because you have not of my sheep. So he describes now in regards to the nature of his sheep. Several things about the sheep. Verse 27, here are distinguishing marks of the sheep. Number one is they hear my voice. <laughs> uh, now, they were hearing his voice, but they weren't hearing his voice. They weren't listening to him. They didn't have an intimate knowledge of Jesus as one of his sheep and, sheep, and they were not hearing the voice of Christ. A distinguishing mark of those who belong to Christ is that they hear the voice of Christ. Uh, and I, to me, I make a distinction there in regards to the spiritual illumination of the truths of God. Not just that I read the Bible and I hear the word of God. There is a spiritual uh, illumination of those truths and they impact me in a very different way. I'm, I'm hearing the truth. I was sharing with the kids this morning. We do it, uh, we have a euphemism uh, when I was a kid, but whenever we didn't do what mama said, she didn't say, did you do what I said? If we didn't do it, she looked at us and she said, did you hear me? Well, the obvious conclusion was, obviously you didn't hear me because had you heard me, you would have been doing what I told you to do. So I'm going to conclude that you didn't hear me. She didn't say you didn't do what I told you to do, which was true. She said, the problem is you didn't hear me. You didn't get the weight of what I was telling you to do. And I think that's what he means here about the sheep. A distinguishing mark of the sheep is that they hear the voice of the shepherd. They literally hear him. He speaks to them and it impacts them. Secondly, he says of the distinguishing marks of the sheep is that I know them. I know my sheep and you are not of them. He's already said that. <laughs> So, so I'm not mistaken. I'm not guessing about who my sheep are. I know who my sheep are. And the reason you're not believing is because you're not one of those. Now, the only way you can become one of those if it's, is if I take you to myself, if I bring you into my fold. And in that sense, you will be believing in that as a result of having been brought into my flock. But as of right now, religious leaders, you are not of my sheep. And I know that with certainty because I know all my sheep. I'm not, at a, I'm, not, I'm not mystified in regards to who my sheep are. I know them. Uh, that's remarkable when you think about the expansion, the expansive nature of that as well. I know all my sheep, I think you could conclude. I don't know just the ones who are here in the immediate area. I know them all. And they're all across the world. 
He says earlier, I have flocks that you don't even know about that I'm going to bring in. I know all of my sheep. And contrary wise, I also know all that are not my sheep. And I'm speaking, in this case, he was speaking to those religious leaders who were not his sheep. And he gives that as the cause of their inability to believe or their unwillingness to believe. I know them. Another distinguishing mark in verse 27 is they follow me. This was kind of convicting for me, or, or at least I felt the weight of that. Don't, don't be deceived into thinking that you can be a sheep and not be a follower of the shepherd. Uh, it's just inconsistent because Jesus says the distinguishing mark of the sheep that I'm talking about that believe is that I know them, that they hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. They don't go their own way. They're not their own governing authority. They are not like the religious leaders are. They do not sit in judgment upon all that I say. They are my sheep. They know my voice. And when I speak and I move, they follow me. Do not deceive ourselves into thinking that you can be a sheep belonging to the shepherd and never give one, one minute's thought to following him. I was sharing this with Hope the other day, and you pray for me because I know this is not the right way to think. But sometimes uh, I wonder if I can find a, a fullness or a happiness in this life knowing that every moment I have is an opportunity to draw near to my Savior and constantly being nagged with this idea that I have squandered one moment for which someday I will have, have to give an account before Christ. And so there's a, it almost is, a, is an unnerving sort of attitude. Now, pray for me, and I'm working on correcting that, and I know there's a right way to view that. But, but it, it at the very least indicates that I am interested in following the shepherd, which is a distinguishing mark that I belong to him, according to his own word here. And here's the question for us. Your presence here tonight is a good suggestion, but is there a real interest in following Christ? Or are you content to say, he knows me, and I know his voice, and, and we're good? Well, if you know him, he knows you, and you know his voice, then the, then the obvious consequence of that or the obvious result of that is that you will desire to follow Christ if indeed you are one of his sheep. And if you are those, in verse 28, he gives to these, these sheep that follow him, hear his voice, and he knows them. He gives to them eternal life, and they will never perish. That's a promise for his sheep. Now remember, this discourse is taking place between those whom he's just said are not my sheep. And so in essence, the things I'm speaking of are exclusive of you. You're not involved in this. You don't know me. You don't hear my voice. I don't know you. You don't have any interest in following me. And you don't have eternal life. And you will perish. And these are those who are not my sheep. He's speaking, these are my sheep. And I'm sure maybe there were believers around that were hearing him, were taking comfort in that. But the people he's talking to are not his sheep. So these things you are deprived of because of who you are or what you are. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, excuse me, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Uh, I like that because it speaks of the aggressive nature of one who would take you away. Uh, it's, it's one thing to, 
to struggle, to be faithful, to have the battles that I just described in my own life. How can I not squander my life and follow Christ with every ounce of strength that I have all my days and those inward spiritual battles. But I love, I love the comfort of knowing that there is no one who might have a desire to separate you from me that can do that. Nobody. No one can snatch. That, that, that speaks to me as well. It's like coming in violently and aggressively and taking hold of me and ripping me out of his presence. And he says, no one can do that. No one can do that. Verse 29, he gives a foundation for that. My father has given them to me, the sheep that belong to me. My father has given them to me. And he is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Then he ties it in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Therefore, no one can snatch you away from me, because I and the Father are one, and no one can snatch them from my Father. That's security. So the sheep have salvation, eternal salvation, eternal life, but they have eternal security. There is, uh, there is good reason to believe in the perseverance of the saints, not based upon our faithfulness, but based upon his faithfulness to his own word and to his own covenant with his people. Uh, so, so that's Jesus is describing now to people who are not his sheep, who can't hear, who have just accused him of not speaking plainly. And finally, will you just tell us already and keep, keep, quit keeping us in suspense? And Jesus essentially says, I've been telling you, and I'll continue to tell you, but your problem is you don't believe. And the reason you don't believe is you're not of my sheep. So your real problem is, your real question should be, Lord, how do I become one of your sheep? Because I want eternal life. I do not want to perish. And I do not want to be snatched away from my God. I want to find security. Lord, how does that happen? They don't ask that question. In fact, at verse 31, you see their results. What do they do in the light of this plain speaking? <laughs> The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. It's not enough. You got, you got away when you said, I am, and we heard you speak plainly, and we were very much offended by that. And now in this discourse, he's speaking plainly again, and rather than hearing and believing, they become angrier, more angry. And again, they double down on their blindness. They, as it were, now their blind eyes are covered with mud and they're not willing to obey the command to go and wash. And so they are doubly blind now. And it's demonstrated by their reaction to plain speech. I mean, you cannot by any stretch of the, uh, the imagination make the case that verse 26 through 29 is ambiguous. <laughs> I mean, it, it just don't work. I mean, he's speaking very clearly, very plainly in regards to who are his sheep and who are not. What are the benefits of being a sheep and what are the, what are the, the consequences of not being a sheep? What is the root of your unbelief? He's speaking very plainly and their response is to become aggressive towards him and want to silence him by stoning him. Uh, by the way, that seems to me even if it's delayed because of cultural influence, that seems to me to be the end goal of all those who are unbelieving. The goal is to silence Christ. And if that means by silencing the witnesses to Christ in this world, then that will come maybe, maybe marginally at the beginning by marginalizing us in the workforce, but later on down the road by cutting us off from society altogether, by literally silencing our voices, if not snuffing out our very lives. 
Because that's where it always ends up. Because the unbelieving do not want to hear the truth. And the more truth they hear, the more they race to the darkness to conceal themselves in their evil deeds. John's already said that in chapter 3. This is judgment. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And so that's what you see. And Jesus is just illuminating what he said already. For judgment I have come into this world so that those who are blind might see and those who see might become blind. And that's exactly what you see working out here. The more truth that he, that he proclaims, the blinder the blind get. And the, and the, the more th those who are like the blind man born blind, the ones who receive the truth and believe are the ones who are becoming unblind. They're coming out of their blindness and they're seeing. And Jesus' words are being fulfilled. So Jesus' response to that in verse 31, 32, Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. Uh, it's as if he's saying, identify the one for which you are stoning me. And the Jews answered him, for a good work, we, will not, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. So that's the charge. And because you, being a man, make, yourselves out, make yourself out to be God. Now, Jesus' response to this, uh, it's, it's been the source of all sorts of heresies. Uh, I was sharing with somebody this morning, I was, I was in, in, under my COVID spell, and I wasn't exactly in the temperament to be tolerating a long, long conversations with Mormons, but they came to the door, and in my, I was sitting there in my chair feeling terrible, and I knew that this, this won't be a good conversation so maybe I shouldn't even do it, but I was already rehearsing in my mind. I'll make this quick. And what I wanted to do, what I was thinking about doing was that I'm going to open the door and I'm going to let you say your introduction. I'm going to say, gentlemen, I love you, but you need to understand something. You are called in a cult. And that cult is blasphemous in that it tells you that you can become God. You can become a God. And if you don't repent from that cult, you will die and you will spend eternity in hell apart from God and of Christ. And then just say, I will be praying for you. Shut the door. Well, about the time I pulled my recliner leg in, they left. So apparently the Lord didn't like my temperament. But, but that's the reason I say that is I think sometimes in our world when we speak truth that plainly, then the darkness does not like that. And, and the reaction may not always be that they come to the light. We pray that it is. That's why we proclaim it. But overwhelmingly, the reaction in the dark world is to go where it's darker. They don't come back to that door or they don't go talking about that or they fly somewhere and immerse themselves in further darkness. By the rejection of that, we demonstrate our pride and we do literally become double blind. So this passage, the reason I say all that is this passage for some people are the source of that kind of thinking. And I've even heard it in some charismatic circles as well, this prosperity teaching. Verse 34, Jesus answered them in response to their questions or their accusations. He says, has it not been written in your law? I said you were God's. If he called them God's to whom the word of God came and the spirit uh, scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Well, that's a quotation Jesus is quoting from Psalm 82. So I want you to turn there with me really quickly tonight. 
because I want you to see the context of it. Uh, by the way, well, I'll give you some references. Now, this is the psalmist here is this this is the un, the rebuke of the unjust judgments of those appointed as judges in Israel. It's the psalm of Asaph, and it begins, it's only eight verses, but God takes his stand in his own congregation. Now, he's, he's calling out those who are judges, those who have been appointed to be judges in their nation, those to whom the word of God has come. He says, and he judges in the midst of the rulers. How long, he says to them, will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Verse 3 says, vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. And then he's speaking of them. He says, the psalmist commentary here, they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods and all of you are sons of the most high. And then he says, nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. And then Eve appeals, arise, O God, and judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. So that's the, that's the passage that Jesus is taking the quotation from. Now, Jesus knows the scriptures, right? So he knows the context of that statement, and he points that out to them. Because the, the rebuke here is the unjust justness of the judges. And he says, essentially, God, God called them gods in the sense of their privilege for having the word of God come to them and the authority which they exercised upon the authority of the word of God. And in, in a very real sense, they were, they were as gods. And, and you, gods, those who have this great blessing and privilege, cannot make a just judgment, rebuke you. You who are, who are called gods because of the privilege, as it were, of your access to the word of God and the authority under which you operated. And so and it is rare, but in the Old Testament, there are references uh, where the word Elohim is used and the word is translated judges and rulers. So it's not real common, but there are instances in the scriptures where the word Elohim is used to refer to earthly men, judges or, uh, or rulers. I'll give you a few of those. In Exodus 22, 8, the word is used there as judges, Elohim. We can, we can turn there real quickly just so you can see them. And this is important because it sets up a context for what Jesus is about to say in response to them. So Exodus 22, 8, he's speaking here in regards of property rights and so forth and, and how uh, they're to treat one another. He says in verse 7, if a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him and it is stolen from the man's house or if the thief... Uh, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property. So the word judge is there. Um, my understanding in the Hebrew is Elohim. So, so there's a reference where he's using the very same words here for judges. Again, in verse, uh, verse 9 of that same passage, for every breach of trust, whether it is for 
uh, ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says this is it. The case of both parties shall come before the judges. Again, the word Elohim there. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. So these are men who are assigned and, and, or given authority to make judgments among their brethren. And so it's not unprecedented that they would be called gods, little g, in, return, in terms of that. Uh, in Exodus 22, uh, 20, 28 is another one. You shall not curse God, nor curse the ruler of your people. Uh, verse 28 there. Uh, so the ruler there is, is the word Elohim as well. So, so I'm just saying that to say there is precedent for acknowledging uh, those who are given earthly authority to make rulings according to the word of God to, to give them that elevated position as well. And so he, that's the context in which verse 80, uh, Psalm 82, I think, is calling them gods. That's why he's referring to them. You were as gods. You, you had this extraordinary privilege to make just judgments according to the word of God. And what have you done with that authority? You have become for sale. You sell the wicked for a bribe. And so he's rebuking them there. So Jesus quotes that passage of Scripture. And so they obviously don't take into idea the full context of it, but I think Jesus does. So Jesus says that, verse 35, So then, if he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, that's where I believe he's referring to the authority of the word of God to them to become judges among their people. If he called them gods to whom that was done, and the Scriptures cannot be broken... Do you say of him, now Jesus exceeds them because he's not just one who has the authority of the word. He's the one whom the father sanctified and sent into the world. He is the word of God. So if, if, if you're okay and the scriptures can't be broken and he calls those to whom the word of God came gods, are you upset with me because I say I'm the son of God when I was sanctified and sent here as the word of God? That's the argument I think he's making here to them. We're going to stone you because you make yourself out to be God. And then he quotes to them, your own scriptures call men God in the context of their capacity to make judgments under the authority of God and by the, by the commands of God among his people. You're okay with calling them gods, but the very one whom God has sanctified and sent into the world, when he says, I'm the son of God, you want to kill him. Don't you see the inconsistency of your position here? Jesus has far more authority as the Word of God and God incarnate than those men who are exercising a, 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 a subjective authority based upon the Word of God. The same as an elder in the church. He has a certain authority granted to him by God to operate and to conduct himself in the business of the church according to the Word of God. But he's not God. <laughs> He's not the word of God himself. Jesus is. And yet you're going to stone me? And that's, the, that's the contradiction in terms they're making. In fact, it shows the depth of their depravity and their judgment as well. And then he finally says to them, verse 37, and having responded to them that way, if I do not do the works of my father, don't believe me. Look at my works. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I am doing them, though you do not believe me, believe the works. 
so that you may be, this was an interesting literal reading, but so that you may be, that you may know and understand. One of the literal readings I was reading of that is that you, will be, that you may know and continue to know. <laughs> that, that really struck me, that literal reading there, that the Father is in me and I in the Father. In other words, if you don't believe me, believe the works. So that in believing the works, you may continue to know and, and continue to realize that the work that I am who I say I am. So believing the works is, is instrumental in you continuing to believe to the point of understanding that I am in the Father and the Father's in me. And I think that's already been demonstrated by the blind man because he, he just listened to the word. He obeyed the word. He didn't know Jesus. He didn't know about a savior. He just knew there was a man who stopped by, anointed his eyes, told him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And he did. And he can see. But then he comes back to the temple and he doesn't yet know Jesus, but he knows the works. He believes the works. And having believed the works, he says to Jesus, who is he that I might believe? And Jesus says, the one who has been speaking to you is he. In other words, you're talking to the savior, the Messiah. And it says that he believed and he worshiped him. So he was following this pattern. And Jesus tells these men the same thing. Even if you don't believe me, believe the works. So that in believing the works, you may continually come to believe and understand that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And so we see finally the response. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him. And he eluded their grasp. <laughs> I don't know about you, but does that not just strike you as stunning? I mean, it seems to me that Jesus has took, made every accommodations to speak clearly and truthfully to them. And every time he does it, they double down in their hardness and their pride and their self-sufficiency. And they are sitting in judgment. And their final conclusion, having sitting upon the throne of authority in their own lives, is that they have concluded that he is to be seized and stoned and silenced. And it won't be long till we'll see a discussion regarding these religious leaders about what they ought to do with this Jesus to finally and fully silence him altogether. Here's, here's one of the blessings to me of this text. If you believe tonight, uh, it is an extraordinary act of the grace of God. He has brought you, he has delivered you from the pit even when you weren't looking for him and made you a part of his flock and brought you into his fold and the response, your response of faith to the active work of God has made you a believer and you are that by the grace and mercy of God alone and that is an extraordinary place to be. But we live in a world where not everyone is of the Father and is of the fold of Jesus Christ. And we ought not to be surprised that the more clearly we speak in terms of who Jesus is, the more this world will hate that light. And I, I just don't want a younger generation particularly to go into the world illusion that the world is going to hear their message and embrace it uh, automatically. God may send revival and he may make people's hearts open to accepting the truth and, and embracing the light of Jesus Christ. But, but history suggests to me and the progression of this world into darkness suggests to me that the darker it gets, the more they will hate that very light. And our, these kids sitting here in this generation, when they get my age, kids, let me say to you already, get some foundation under you now because you're going to need it. Because already in my generation, there are those who are wavering in the face of threats 
of isolation and marginalization in society and threats to income levels. By the time you get my age and by the t- if you hold fast to the truth of the gospel, who knows what they'll threaten to take away from you. Will you live a life of poverty for the sake of Jesus Christ? Those may be questions you have to ask. So I encourage you to be serious now, as serious as you can, and lean upon your parents as your disciples and the word of God to equip you to stand in that day and be in that day a believer. John concludes in that chapter by saying in verse 40, and he went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. And many came to him and were saying, speaking of John, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And he leaves us on an encouraging note in verse 42, but because of this, many did believe in him. And there's the positive note. He was in the face of unbelief, and he was, he was defining and describing that unbelief and the root of that unbelief. But all the while, there were many who were believing, many whom God was bringing into the fold of the sheep. And as a result of that, ultimately, you and I as believers today, and that's just, that's just almost leaves us without words. Uh, we are dependent upon the grace and mercy of God, and he's a gracious God. So, amen. Stand with me tonight. Let's pray be going into one of my favorite chapters in all the Gospels, chapter 11. Uh, So I'm looking forward to that as well. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Lord, I think often about the man encountered by Christ who said, uh, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And I feel as though we sometimes fall into that category. I certainly do. Lord, I believe and I recognize the supernatural and the divine origin of that belief. I know that I didn't drum it up out of some superior intellect or I didn't just evaluate the truths more precisely and correctly. Lord, it is a divine given uh, conviction, a divine faith given to us. But Lord, I also realize that the world and my flesh uh, still has its moments where what is, what is sometimes seemingly unbelievable is actually not believed. And so, Father, help my unbelief. I pray for those here tonight as well, Lord. I thank you for those who have come to believe and who by your grace have become part of your flock. Lord, we are thankful that we are saved indeed, that we have eternal life, that we shall never perish. uh, John will tell us in in chapter 11 in regards to those who are uh, believing Jesus will never die and those who die and believe in him will rise again. So, Father, we thank you that we have everlasting life and we will never perish. And Father, I thank you for the security tonight to know that whatever this world brings and whatever weaknesses my flesh may endure, I cannot be snatched from your hand. I cannot be taken away by violence from the one who has redeemed me. Lord, what a tremendous blessing that is and what a tremendous source of comfort. And I pray that we would hold fast to that, whether it be our enemy or whether it be sickness or or the threat of death in this world or financial ruin or sorrow or or distresses of any kind paul reminds us that none of these things can separate us from your love in christ jesus and i pray as we leave this place tonight we'll go with that comfort and that encouragement lord help us to be found faithful throughout this week help us not to squander opportunities lord i don't want to be disturbed and be become debilitating in my obsession with wasting moments but father just help us to be mindful that our lives are in your hands and that we exist for your glory and help us to live accordingly this week. 
We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.